forward to that. I'm now live for episode 82 of the Strength and Success Show. I'm going to wait for Riley to hop on here and send the joint request. We'll see how she's doing today. Pretend I don't know. <laughs> but episode 82 will be called A Stronger You. As always on this podcast, you guys are entitled to ask questions on the podcast. We usually answer them on the podcast live as well as questions that people have sent us through our story Q&As. There's the join request, so we'll have Riley join us in just about. It'll pop through, and you'll get the most wonderful hello ever. Much better than mine. Hello. Well, there, yeah. <laughs> I foreshadowed that as the most wonderful hello ever, because uh, we, we joke, I, I can't seem to say hello. It's always like, hey, what's up, guys, or how you doing, or what's going on, Christy Joe? but never hello. I can only say hello. <laughs> We're so one-dimensional. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing well. I had some pretzels. I took Sophie outside. Um, she's chewing on a bone right now to distract her. So maybe it'll last the whole podcast. That way she doesn't try to jump on my lap like she does every episode. She's very needy. She is. Very, very much an attention whore. That's a <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, who wouldn't want to be live on Instagram? <laughs> We, we always get some random person like, how do I join the podcast? Like, well, you, you're not. <laughs> but have you tried being a dog? <laughs> Puppies get views. So we're yes, yeah. All right. Things are good. Things are good. Good. All right. This is episode 82, A Stronger You. A Stronger You builds character. And we're going to go over that topic. You guys are also welcome to ask questions on the live. As I said, when we started this, we have, I think we have 11 or 12 stocked up questions from a story Q&As, which is also really good. Some of them are really good. Uh, different unique questions. I know Alexis just asked one that happens here today that I really like is an interesting one to discussion because it's uh, one we don't get very often. And it's one that is uh, shrouded in mystery, um, so to speak. And that was the one about behind the neck, but we'll get there. So a stronger you is a better you in every way. We often talk about um, doing things with intention. And we talk about building things that create positive habits, reinforcement, building your group. And when we are training for a stronger us, we are showing up for ourselves in one capacity. But there's an expression that how you do one thing is how you do everything. And while it's not entirely true, it does lead to a context of a domino effect. When you are training very, very focused and very, very intently, you begin to look at other aspects of your life that you can apply a better version of yourself, such as less TV time, more reading, food preparation, uh, daily steps, mobility, stretching, learning more about what you're doing and so forth. And the, that's a skill that builds character that tends to travel over to many other areas of your life. This is kind of a discussion I was having this week with my son who hates school and it's talking about how boring school was. And I'm like, trust me, you can't see the foundation you're building in school. You just hear the lesson and that's all you think about. But he's getting social development, social skills. He's learning how to listen. He's learning how to write. He's learning how to think. You know, school does a lot of creative thinking and critical thinking skills. Um, how to be part of a social network because we are not an entity unto ourselves, even though we all can be a little selfish with ourselves. We're not by ourselves in this world. We're surrounded by many things and many people. And outside of grade school, those of you who are involved in a gym community start to notice those same things. You have to work with people. You might be sharing equipment, uh, asking for a spot, learning from them, teaching them, coexisting with them. So a stronger you builds a better you all the way around. And that's one of the aspects that I always like for people to focus on is not what can I do better? It's how could you serve your community better? Because that's going to come back and serve you as well. The more relationships, the more networks you build and create, 
the better opportunity you have to get stronger because you're going to have people who teach you, listen to you, apply help, apply help for you, uh, understand you, show up for you, whatever. There's so many different aspects that we don't think about that creating your community goes into making a stronger you. Yeah, I mean, we probably beat a dead horse with how powerlifting is less about the physical strength and more about the mental strength. It's a physical strength sport and you're testing your one rep max, but the people that are at the top and that are the strongest generally don't let the mental get in their way or they don't let uh, their excuse get in their way or they are motivated and disciplined in the sport. And that goes so much further than like what your physical capabilities are. Like if you're just naturally strong and how you are, like you're going to be strong, but you're only going to be so strong if your habits, your motivations, your desires, all that kind of stuff doesn't really match up with it. Um, there are people that have plenty of opportunity to be super, super strong and successful in the sport, but they mentally hold themselves back because they cannot, they can't kind of can't get over themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, simple things you know it's like yeah we all have bad joke about like oh yeah I'm afraid of squats and deadlifts but I suck at my sucks like you know we all make those kind of jokes and we're all like oh I'm just a deadlift specialist or oh these suck you know, we all do that but like there are people that will legitimately hold themselves back because it's like session they go in they're like well I suck at this and I'll shit the bed anyways so like there's no point in putting any effort into it and it's like that's what's holding you back right there is like you're not willing to put changing anything and it really is as simple as being like you know what yeah this isn't my best but I have so much area of opportunity to grow and improve here and that's why I said to so many other clients is like when they you know when they start they're like oh my bench is really low I want to bring that up and I really suck at bench and it's usually pretty negative uh, in that aspect. And that's generally always my response is like, cool, that has the most area of opportunity to grow. So we can focus on that. And it's just like small tweaks. And it's just changing your mindset to stop being like, so in with I'm bad at this, I'm going to continue to be bad at this, and changing it to be out of the box and being like, okay, there is opportunity to grow. If Hello. I Hello. Yeah, you're there. You were loading for, uh, for about 10 seconds, but we seem to have you consistently now. Okay. A patio door. <laughs> I hope you're on Wi-Fi. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. All right, because it was facing out on and off again there a little bit. Okay, my back now. Yes, you are. Okay. Um. So basically, what I'm getting at is, like, how you mentally approach your training and really anything in your day-to-day -day life is how your is like how the outcome will be dictated. Um, something that I've been struggling with this year is like doing things for myself and like, you know, putting myself first and that's what I'm working on. So I'm constantly working on that, but I tend to generally fall short in very basic ways that like I should be focusing on, not even from a powerlifting aspect, just from like a literal general health aspect. And that is I fall behind on eating and I fall behind on hydrating and, you know, like powerlifting is required like you have to be strong you have to be fueled so you have to eat and uh you have to hydrate because that's how we want that's where we're going to perform better and those are things that hold me back and those are things that i know hold me back um so like this morning i ordered um i'm a little bougie with my steak so i ordered like piedmontese steaks and those are going to be delivered to me because i really like those i generally am really weird about the cut of steak that i buy from the grocery store i also ordered trifecta nutrition pre-made meals and yeah that's expensive and that is a um investment for me 
to buy those things, but I am more likely to make something that is pre-made rather than like, I love fresh cooked meals. We've talked about this on like way long podcasts before, like I hate Tupperware stuff, but I'm like, okay, stop getting yourself the excuse of like, you're too lazy or you're too busy to make food. Um, and if you had these pre-made food that like meals that are already in your fridge, just warm them up. That's all you have to do. So that's me taking a step towards like changing the things that are holding me back from a stronger me and being like, okay, this is, this is my step one. So step two would be to replace one of those meals with something that I'm cooking for myself. So that way I eventually kind of cut costs down and whatnot, but it's one step at a time. So my first step is like getting meals here that make it easy for me to warm up for breakfast, warm up for lunch. And so that way I'm actually fueling for my workouts. And then once I start seeing how different it is and like how much better I feel and I'm fueling, I'll be like, okay, well, I don't necessarily need to buy the breakfast anymore. I'll make myself breakfast. So I'll just stick with like the lunches or the pre-made meals for lunches or whatever. And then eventually I'll get back into the course of me prepping all of my meals for myself, making sure that I'm getting my gallon. And so it's a step-by-step process, but I know that these things will make for a stronger me, not even just powerlifting related. Like I said, you have to eat, you have to hydrate just to be healthy in general. So these are things that I need to do. So it's just about taking those small steps forward towards it and not trying to go full bore hundred percent because that's how people burn out and fizzle out. You, you mentioned something in process there that I've talked about often, you've talked about often and you invested into yourself. It wasn't replacing anything. It was, I'm, you're acknowledging you're spending money so you can create the habit and then you'll replace the habit with better habits and better behaviors. But this was step one to start that. And I've always said that those who pay, pay attention. So you've acknowledged you're paying more for this service than it will cost you to do it yourself, but you're doing it because it's going to make you eat it, make you get the habit going. Step one. Step two, you start replacing those meals with ones you're making because you realize you lost the habit. So you're paying to replace the habit and build that process. You've invested in yourself. You've paid yourself first, which is the most important thing you can do is pay yourself first. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's not just about the one to two hours in the gym, as we've said many, many times before, being a stronger you is being stronger everywhere outside of it, uh, mentally, physically, um, you know, habit wise, all of that goes into it. So it cannot be understated or it cannot be overstated enough that I think I said that right. It cannot be overstated enough that all those things that you do outside the gym are important for the gym. It all adds up. It's a cumulative effect. All right, let's crack open this key trains and uh, let's get to some of these questions. All right. Since you already brought it up, we'll talk about the one that Alexis mentioned. And so behind the neck pull downs for lower trap activation, fan or not a fan? This is really interesting because you don't get a lot of questions about this type of movement. Uh, I do talk a lot about low trap activation. Andrew Locke talks about low trap activation. Squat University talks about low trap activation. These are things that help stabilize and ability for you to pack your shoulders down the back, which we need to squat, bench, and deadlift. Um, people avoid certain movements because they were deemed dangerous. There is no such thing as a dangerous movement. Our bodies were designed to move. However, if we lack the necessary mobility to do them well, that's when we get in that danger zone is when we're forcing under load a position we can't hold or maintain because we aren't mobile enough or strong enough. So in the earlier days, the behind the neck pull down and the behind the neck press were big staples. And then people realized they might be compromising themselves because people jut their head forward to get their around their back and they're defeating the purpose of the pressing and squeezing that scapula down. There are ways around that. Uh, I do love the behind the neck pull down. I just don't love the way the majority of people perform it. So if I'm going to do a behind the neck pull down, I'm not going to have someone face the machine and drop their body down and try and pull and touch the base of their neck because that's when they get in that danger zone if they lack the mobility. What I'd rather them do is turn around, face the other way, take that wide grip, and without compromising their position, 
arch their upper back, raise their sternum up, and pull just about two-thirds of the way down. So they're not forcing any range of motion they can't get, but they'll be able to do that. The better way to do this wouldn't be to focus necessarily on load. It would be focusing on contraction and position. So bringing them down and having a pause and holding because we have to hold them for about four to five seconds every squat rep, every deadlift rep, every bench rep. So bring a letter weight down, hold it down, condition the position and take advantage of that. It doesn't always have to be about chasing load on every single movement. Some of them are more intentional to activate or, or condition certain muscles. And that's what our focus should be on a behind the neck pull down is making sure you're in the safest possible position, making sure you're getting the most efficient movement out of it and making sure you're getting a carryover effect from it. So the behind the neck pull down isn't necessarily a dangerous movement or inherently bad movement. It's just performed poorly by a lot of people because they lack the mobility to get into that position. Change your position to a safer angle, turn around, sit upright, and only pull two thirds of the way down and utilize that scapular depression and retraction simultaneously and learn how to hold it. It will benefit you tremendously. So I also agree in that I don't think that there's any exercise that is inherently dangerous, but how we perform them is probably not always ideal. Or if you're performing them poorly, like you should be instructed to perform them a little bit better. But I think that realistically, any movement that gets people to feel a certain muscle that maybe they're not activating or that they are generally losing in a movement is always going to be beneficial. That is the one thing that majority of people do not have is body awareness that holds them back from like an ideal position with their squat bench or deadlift. Um, when we were doing seminars, the thing that I like to talk about was muscle builders and lift builders. And those are important because they are specific. Um, like your lift builder is something that is going to mimic your squat bench or deadlift, the area that you are needing opportunity or that you have a lot of opportunity in. Like if you know specifically you fall apart in this position for squats, having your lift builder is going to work on improving that position. Uh, and then your muscle builders are going to be the areas that need a little bit more strength. Like for most raw lifters, that is quads, back, triceps, uh, and core. And so your muscle builders are going to focus on those. So if something like a behind the back or behind the neck pull down is going to activate area of need for you, then I, yes, absolutely think do it. It's the same thing with re realistically any other movement. Like if someone tells me that they feel more with a tricep kickback than they feel with a tricep pushdown, then do the tricep kickback. Like if that is something that allows you to pump blood and like get a contraction in the muscle more than another one, then absolutely do that. Like I've had clients do that to me before where they're like, I don't really feel anything when I do this. Is there something that I can switch it for so that way I can feel it? And that because like a lot of bodybuilders, that's what they're doing is isolating. So that way they can feel the muscle. They want to feel the burn. They want to feel the squeeze. And with trying to build body, body awareness power lifters, feeling that burn and feeling that muscle contract and twitch is probably incredibly necessary for them to put it all together as far as integration goes into their lifts. So if you are feeling something and it is something that is contracting a muscle that you need, do it. Absolutely. I think it's a great point of learning how to feel certain intrinsic muscles that maybe you're not aware of. And that's how we build better patterns and positions over time. There is a good question on here from uh, Jan Beast or I am Beast, I'm not really sure. But hey, y'all, is the taper supposed to feel heavy? Did a squat single at 80% three days out and I feel so heavy. I can't talk about your taper specifically because I don't know what you've done or your programming style. But that is often the case where the last two weeks you have a lot of fatigue build up. And that's kind of the point of the taper is to allow that fatigue to dissipate. So the way that's often done is by reducing volume or reducing load. I'm sure before you took the 80% single three days out, 
there was a period before that that was significantly heavier, maybe 90, 92, 95, or maybe even 100% of your squat. So you're lifting lower load. It's going to allow for some recovery, a little bit less fatigue buildup. You're maintaining a motor pattern, and you probably have less volume. So if you're taking 80% three days out, I'm going to assume you're on a daily unfilling periodization style programming. I'm just making that assumption because most programs that are linear don't do that kind of shit. Um, so you, you probably have significantly less work than you had going in there. That is just to maintain your motor pattern. And yeah, sometimes it's going to still feel heavy because that means you still have residual fatigue built up. You still have three days to drop that. Would I like 80% to feel heavy three days out? No. That means either you needed to start your taper a little bit sooner or you needed a little bit more of a taper than you were given. But 80% shouldn't feel heavy if you're going to meet three days out. It should feel like 80% for a single, which for a lot of people is speed work. So, you know, that's not the most ideal. I don't want to know SIBO you. You might just still be tired and that can dissipate in the next three days. But that's something that you want to communicate to your coach that, you know, for future, for future program planning for you, that maybe you need a little bit longer of a taper. Everyone's recovery and adaptability is different. That's the whole point of individual coaching, not just the basic program, is you're learning and understanding how that lifter responds to certain things. For some people, they might need to take their heaviest squat three weeks out and taper that down. For other people, you know, uh, whatever William Crozier, his recovery for his deadlift was exceptionally long. Same thing with Richford. They needed to take their heaviest deadlifts almost four weeks out and then taper down from there. Otherwise, they didn't have it. So that's just something you learn. For some people, they can take a very heavy bench before and it doesn't affect them, but a very heavy squat does. Very heavy is relative to the person, so there's not a number I can give you. But that just depends upon your health, your conditioning, your nutrition habits, your sleep habits, your recovery habits, and so forth. So is it normal? Yeah. Sometimes it's normal that even when you're tapering, things still feel heavy. Generally, three days out, I'm deloading into a meet. For me, usually it's going to be 60, 65%, not 80%, because I just want you to be able to apply force and keep a motor pattern. You're not building anything at that point. So I, I would usually use a little bit less going to the week of a meet. But, you know, sometimes it's still going to feel heavy even on that week because you still are tired. That will dissipate if you keep moving and keep your blood flow up, keep your nutrition up. Which is one of the reasons why we always harp on don't do a last-minute cut if you're not familiar with it because that adds more stress when you're trying to taper away fatigue. So three days out, you still have a significant – you still have a good amount of time to recover. Even if, you, if this is your last workout, like you have three days to recover now. So that is a positive. I don't know what your program is. But generally, if someone is competing on a Saturday, I have them do their last workout on a Wednesday. And similar to Trevor, I'm not going above 70% for just singles, just to pry and keep you fast and whatnot. Um, but I think that people get a little bit confused on like what peak is supposed to be or what a taper is supposed to look like. And um, I've had clients in the past or potential clients in the past that will see their three and two week out program and they'll be like, well, I'm not doing enough. Um, but what they're not realizing is that they are going to accumulate a lot of fatigue. There are only so many reps that you can take 90% before you just fizzle yourself out. So like at three and two weeks out, what you're going to do is you're going to in, you're going to drop the volume so you can increase the intensity. So that may only be one or two singles at 90, 95%, 100%, 100%, whatever it is. But that is, uh, that is how it's supposed to be. Like it's supposed to be just focused on skill uh, and technique and work and like moving it well. It's not focusing on like doing a bunch of uh, accessories. Like I've seen programs that are like a four, like four to five accessories at two weeks out. Um, that's like a four by 10. And it just seems like a lot of extra work on top of an already fatigued body. So it's hard to recover if you are training like that and you only have two to three days of no work. Um, so a peak isn't supposed to be throwing a bunch of shit at you and just like overworking the body. Peak is supposed to be 
limiting that volume so that way you can progress towards that maximal strength. Um, and then the taper is going to significantly decrease the load so that way you can just get just be primed, just be fatigued. Super compensation is what happens when you are recovering during that time. So there's anywhere from a 2.5 to 5% increase, sometimes seven, they say, but uh, increase in your last heavy lift if you are recovered well. Um, so if you are taking your last heavy squat bench or deadlift, and then whatever you hit based off of super compensation rules, you should be able to hit 2.5 to 7% higher on meet day if you are recovering properly. So making sure that that taper is actually like, pro like proper for yourself and is good and you're feeling good. And like Trevor said, you're probably just feeling super fatigued right now and that's okay, you have three days to recover. But that is what the super compensation does. But if you don't give yourself that time to recover, you won't hit that super compensation. You'll likely hit less because realistically, if you just keep throwing shit at yourself, you're going to peak in the gym instead of for the meat. Yeah, and uh, there are some East German studies on this. Uh, for example, if you were to take heavy singles every week, like you would last about two to three weeks before you start seeing a regression. And so that's why most people keep a peak phase somewhere between three and four weeks. And sometimes even shorter than that, depends on the recovery method of a lifter. But if you took like your max for one week and then you came back the next week and tried the max again, you might either tie it or you might beat it by five pounds. But the following week, you'd start to see a regression because fatigue just keeps accruing at a, a nervous system level. You can't dissipate that fast because you're hitting max every time. That's why we kind of have those peaks and valleys of programming where volume is high at some point. We're trying to build. Volume comes down. Intensity comes up. We're trying to strengthen and so forth. It's important to understand the way that your body responds to each or at least have your coach understand the way your body responds to each so you can build and progress from there. And that's why we taper into a meet because if you don't and you keep doing all that work, you're going to be very fit. That's great. But you're not going to be as strong as you possibly could be. That's why also people generally don't PR unless their training is going phenomenally and they have increased their one rep max between like meets or something. That's generally why your last heavies will not be a PR unless things are going fantastically because you can only hit so much. Like Trevor said, you may hit it one week and then you may come back the next week and try it again, but only match it. You haven't gotten any better. You just are like adapted to that at that point. Mm -hmm. But if you're in your, uh, if you're in your peak phase, and you are maxing out in the gym, it is unlikely that you will have um, that extra juice to go on meet day. So that's why generally last heavies are not above 100% unless prep has been going fantastically or like I said, unless you hit a new PR somewhere in training that allowed you to surpass what your last comp was, but it's just very unlikely, unless you're new. Uh, yeah. It's easier to wear. And they'll see it for someone who goes from natty to not natty that they have this astronomical growth period coming through. But once someone's seasoned and conditioned to it, it's less and less and less. And those, those lifters are usually taking slightly less than their max in the gym, so they can PR in the mean. Yeah. Okay. Right, question. Lower back arching during squats. That means you're losing your brace. So if you're lower back arching, it means you're not hinging at the hips. It means you're tilting at the pelvis. And you don't understand the difference between a hinge and a tilt. Uh, on the culture page, I have put up a couple videos on this of learning how to actually hinge. Your whole body should move with the hinge, not just your pelvis. A lot of people who don't understand stacking the ribs over the pelvis and bracing will just tilt their lumbar. And what happens is it makes it harder for the hamstrings to lengthen for them to hit depth. They lose their back position. They either fold forward or they arch so much that they squat high because they're loading their low back, not loading their quads. So there is a difference that you have to understand between what a hinge pattern looks like and what a tilt pattern looks like. If you're tilting, that means you're opening yourself up. That is not a hinge. And that's why you have no brace. That's why you have no power in the hole. And usually you'll see knees collapse and so forth because there's nothing stacked to create stability in between. 
majority of raw lifters want to focus on the majority, but not all, but majority of raw lifters want to focus on opening and spreading at the knees and sitting straight down instead of sitting back. Generally when people sit back is when they start to arch and that's when they lose that stacked torso position because they don't realize what the hinge is where your chest comes with the hips. It all moves in unison. It's like, a, it's like a link. Um, it all moves in unison. So there are some lifters who have like super long femurs. And I think we talked about this last episode or maybe the episode before, but like when you have a long femur, sometimes you can kind of like segment it a bit to where you hinge first. So you hinge your body first and then you drop down by opening and spreading the knees out. Uh, but that's one thing that raw lifters tend to do relatively incorrectly um, based on their body type, not always incorrect, but some will sit back just way too far. And it's like they're trying to reach and sit their butt back to a box or like a chair or something behind them when they just need to sit down. Yeah, it's because they've read some old school powerlifting material that shows the multiply squat or the single ply squat that doesn't necessarily work for the raw squatter. Raw, we're on the quads, raw, we're holding the brace. You know, we're using our anterior chain more so than our posterior chain. Um, one of the better ways to build that awareness, if you don't have the awareness, is pause goblet squats, pause front squats, and no hands SSB squats where you have to stabilize the bar so it doesn't fall off your back. They really force you to engage your brace and your torso. Any of those are, are beneficial. And if it's something you struggle with, you should probably warm up with them. You know, warm up with goblet squats, warm up with pause front squats, or when you're doing the SSB, do it no hands so you aren't supporting the bar, you're bracing your body instead. Build that neurological connection, build a pattern, and watch your strength go up as you create a better pattern. The next question is related to what you just said. Uh, conjugate for raw lifters and your thoughts on it. Okay. So this gets such a bad rap. I'm not anti-conjugate. I actually really like a concurrent system. Unbeknownst to most people, daily undulating periodization is a concurrent system because they have a day where it's power day, volume day, and strength, and so forth. They call it different verbiages. Daily undulating periodization is hyper-specialized. You're always low bar squatting. You're always pause benching. You're always deadlifting your comp stance. The only real variation to that might be high bar or pause or close grip or legs up or pausing your deadlift and so forth. There's not a tremendous amount of variation. Where concurrent systems or conjugate systems go wrong for the raw lifter is people try and take the philosophies and theories of the West Side exercise selection and apply it to the raw lifter. Now, there's nothing wrong with West Side. West Side was its own system. West Side did popularize conjugate system concurrent training methods for a lot of people with the dynamic effort, the uh, maximal effort, and repetition method. But what's lost here is Louis understood multiply powerlifting better than anybody and trained the leverages for multiply. Those mechanics aren't matching a raw lifter and neither is the amount of work you're doing for the posterior chain. As we just said before this, most of the raw lifting comes from your anterior chain, quads, core, lats, and so forth. It's not coming from your erectors, it's not coming from your glutes, it's not coming from your hamstrings, it's not coming from your hips. We have different lifting mechanics. So if you're doing sit back wide stance box squats or ultra wide sumo deadlifts in a suit or single ply gear or briefs and so forth, that type of training isn't gonna necessarily carry over for the majority of raw lifters who are using their quads and core. It's gonna transfer, I'm sorry, transfer over much more to a single ply or multi-ply lifter who's leveraging and sitting back into the gear, sitting back to the suit and using that, that leverage up to break the floor or work on the weakest part of the squat. We have to learn how to create our own suit. Doing all that posterior chain work just teaches someone to then tilt their pelvis because multi-ply do actually go into the anterior tilt to sit into the suit. We don't. We stay stacked and raw. And there is where the problem lies is people applying the wrong accessory and exercise movements and not understanding. And, and you just had a lifter come to you who, who wanted to do conjugate and you're like, he has no quad work. <laughs> and that's like the big giveaway is like, 
He didn't train the prime mover at all. And that's where people go wrong with a conjugate program is they don't train the prime mover at all. They train the accessory movements and we have different mechanics. It doesn't work and that's why. It's not the system. It's the person who's applying the system who's applied it wrong for their needs. I love conjugate. I think it's so <laughs> Don't say. <laughs> it, it is how I got started. Um, for the most part, like I, I've talked about it before, I ran like Juggernaut in the beginning that I went to conjugate. It was a lot of fun, um, but I learned a lot with it and I learned a lot of what not to do, which is just as valuable as what to do. Um, and Trevor mentioned I had a guy reach out that asked me to look at his program. He was writing his own conjugate program. He wanted me to take a look at it and see if there was any like recommendations that I could make. He was asking some other uh, coaches who also like conjugate. Um, so he sent it to me and it was it was very heavy on the posterior chain. There was zero there was zero quad work except for some SSB work. Uh, and he is a raw lifter. He even prefaced that he's like I'm a raw squatter. He's like my squat is the toughest that it's or it's the it takes the longest to come up. And so when I looked at his program, I was like, you know, I'm going to be honest here. I think that you need more quad work. I was like, you only, the only quad work that you have in is like an SSB squat, and that's going to target your quads and your torso. But like other than that, you know, he had a lot of reverse hypers, glute ham raises, uh, good mornings. Like he gets. He's doing every amp deadlifts on top of this. So he's getting so much hinge work, so much hamstring work, so much glute work, but like zero quad work. Um, he had a lot of box squats and things like that, which generally people tend to sit back on those also. So that was the rec that was like one of the recommendations that I made to him was adding in more quad work. Um, another thing that I don't always love for a raw lifter, especially if they're relatively green and a little bit new, is speed work. I don't think that people need as much speed work. I think that you should be focusing on moving everything as fast as possible. So like to have a dedicated speed day, I don't find to be necessary. They are so fun. I like speed work days. I enjoy uh, the lifters that I do program conjugate they will get them every once in a while just because it's fun uh or even like maybe after like after their main work maybe throw in some like speed work sets and like i i prefer chains over bands we've talked about this before bands provide a false sense of uh, stability they will keep you in pattern especially with squats like you're you can you're on a fixed up and down pattern like a smith machine so majority of people are not going to be squatting in their squat stands and they're going to be a lot more stable than they would be normally I prefer chains because it provides that instability. So it teaches you to become the stability in the movement, like, cause that's constantly swinging. Um, so I prefer chain work and I also prefer repetition method days instead of dynamic effort days. So that'll be more high, uh, high volume work, more muscle building rather than working on speed because generally most of us need is more, uh, foundation more strength built so i like conjugate and i think that it can work well but it has to be catered to the lifter um i also don't love it for peak some people have a lot of really really great success with it but generally if i have someone who's running kind of conjugate about eight weeks out i'm going to switch them to linear so that way they can get used to practicing the competition movements so they may do variations all the way up until like eight weeks out and then at eight weeks out i would like them to switch to a comp squat, a comp bench, and a comp deadlift. So that way they can get in the groove of it again because it is weird to go from constant, and I've done that because I've competed this way. It's weird to go from a variation and then the next week be told that you have to comp squat, comp bench, and comp deadlift, and you haven't been for the past couple months. It's weird. And skill practice is what we are doing with powerlifting. So the more that you practice something, the better that you get. Like I said, some people are very, 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 very successful with doing circuit maxes and peaking for powerlifting meet with conjugate, but you don't necessarily peak with conjugate. You are max effort every single week. So that way, realistically, you're ready whenever you want. Like if you're constantly max efforting, you could choose a meet next week and you could realistically be ready. 
Um, so there isn't really like a peak for it. So that's why I like to switch to something more linear about eight weeks out. So that way they can continue to practice and we can see what we actually built with those variations in the areas of opportunity. And then it allows them to dissipate their fatigue. It allows them to focus on force and power and everything like that. So I think that conjugate is great. I just think that for a raw lifter, majority of the time it needs to be modified. And, and some level of, if you're going to run conjugate for raw, like, like Riley was saying, as you get closer to me, if you want to run conjugate to me, that's fine, but, but add some level of specificity. You don't want to be fooled by randomness. Uh, yeah, your three-pin dead zerker squat got stronger, but that doesn't mean your back squat got stronger because you haven't put a bar back up there because you've been using a front squat harness and some other bullshit. So, you know, all those things are great, and they add novelty, and novelty does add a stimulus, but you have to know when to be a little bit more specific. And if you're getting into comp time, that's a time to really add specificity, whether it be, you know, something much more similar to your pattern, uh, such as a straight bar or comp standards like a pause in the bench press and so forth. You have to be conditioned to that and that motor pattern with that apparatus. What's our next question? How to combat meat day fatigue. This, uh, I remember this question. Meat day fatigue is not difficult. This is truly one of the laziest competition sports known to man. We have 10 to 15 minutes between our single attempts. And if you're fading on meat day, it usually means you've eaten poorly on meat day. It's one of my big pet peeves when people are eating candy all day. You're going to crash. You, you literally only need sustainable carbohydrates and hydration on meat day. It's not the day to worry about your protein requirements. It's not the day to worry about your, your healthy fats and stuff like that. It's the day to just fuel your body to perform. So eating carbs that aren't going to make you crash, having some fats with them to stabilize your blood sugar, making better choices throughout the day and making sure you're hydrated and not getting overly amped up and excited and relaxing between attempts is an easy way to sustain yourself. If you want to have candy, that's fine. Save it for deadlifts. If you're eating Swedish fish after your warm-ups on squats, I guarantee you after bench, you're going to be trash. I have pointed this out to so many people at so many different meets just for fun. I'll watch someone eating Swedish fish or Sour Patch on their squat warm-ups. I'm like, watch, they're going to shit the bed on deadlifts. And every freaking time they shit the bed on deadlifts because they faded during the meet from eating junk candy all day. People bring like baked goods and squeaks. And I had a client who was competing with me. Russ with sour chips. I'm going to kick your ass, Russ. I had a client who was competing with me in a meet, and uh, actually several. This was back at like Battle of the Bay 3 when I used to have like 15 people compete with me, and I was crazy. Um, she offered one of my other clients a brownie, and it was like during squat warm-ups. It was actually Eddie. <laughs> I almost made Eddie cry because you know how emotional he is. I'm like, don't you fucking eat that. And I shouted across the warm-up room. He's like, why? I'm like, because you're going to crash. And she was like kind of offended. She's like, but I bake these. I'm like, that's great. We'll all eat them after deadlifts. I promise you I'll eat your damn brownies, but not till after deadlifts. And um, she ate the brownies and she kind of crashed and Eddie didn't eat the brownies and he had the meat of his life. <laughs> you know, you can, why would you want to ruin an entire eight, 10, 12, 15, 16 weeks of training by eating freaking candy that you can have any time of the day? I don't understand that. Learn how to sustain yourself for one freaking day. Be disciplined for one freaking day. It's not that hard. And then have all the candy, all the crap, anything you want. <laughs> Banana nut muffins and methyl trend. That's the combo right there from Greeno. That's, that's definitely like a multiply move if I've ever heard one. <laughs> but yes, literally think about it in that context. Am I going to ruin the last four, five, six months of training by stuffing my face with shit food all day long because I can? No. Wait. Delayed gratification for four freaking hours and you're going to have the meat of your life that you've actually fucking trained for by not having that. You know, have some coconut water, have some electrolytes, ease up on the sugar, have some fruit, you know, that, that's why I have like peanut butter with a little bit of bread and fruit. 
the peanut butter is not a lot. It's just a little bit that has some, some fats in there that are going to slow digestion down. So I'm not stuffed, but I'm not crashing either. And the breads are going to give me some sustainable carbs. And so is the fruit because it's fructose. It's slow digesting. It keeps me fueled. It keeps me fed. And I hydrate all day and I take in like sodium and stuff like that. And I have never faded. Uh, actually, funny story. The only meat I ever faded at was, um, we were just talking about that. I, I, I had um, a stomach virus. And all I managed was like my opening deadlift. And I was like flat. It was like the slowest opening deadlift I ever had. And I made the stupid decision to jump up to what my second should be. And it was like stapled. But I had a stomach virus and I was puking and throwing up and going to the bathroom like eight times at the meat. Uh, and that was the only time I've ever been flat. But I've never eaten candy. I've never eaten shit food. I've never done any of that through any of my meats because I watch everybody else around me. 50 plus contests. Every time I will see someone crash from eating candy all day. Well, muffins, I think, are perfect because I'm someone who, like, doesn't like to uh, – I don't like to have, like, heavy meals in me before squatting or deadlifting or anything like that. Um, so muffins are great because they are calorically dense, and it's not, like, such a surplus of food. It has carbs. It has uh, fat to it, not that much protein, but you don't really need heavy amounts of protein on meat day. You just need carbs and fats to sustain you. Um, but also, you kind of mentioned in the beginning – you this it's very lazy you just have to complete nine singles that's it right. and like about it real there's no reason why you peaked on meet day considering like your training sessions leading up to meet day usually consist of i'm assuming two to uh possibly two to three barbell movements three to four exercises of each followed by three to four accessories three to four sets of each of those so like how are you fatigued on meet day with nine singles when your whole prep you were doing like 12 sets of like your total every like overall with multiple reps like there's there's really there's realistically no reason to be fatigued on meat day you're adapted to it already you should be so well rested and so well recovered on meat day if you're eating properly like trevor's talking about the other thing with that is like not just candy but caffeine um is like going overboard on the caffeine or like seeing people drink three to four energy drinks that are all like 300 milligrams of caffeine all day. And it's like, yeah, that's a, that's a lot. Um, I like to save my caffeine for deadlifts because you are going to crash just like candy. You're going to crash at some point. So if you're opening up a 300 milligram uh, bang or some or rain or whatever before squats, and then you're having another one before bench and then another one before deadlifts, like, you will crash. You'll eventually not, you'll, it will not be a net positive from drinking that much caffeine. So I usually recommend people save their caffeine for later on in the day when they need to get over that like midday slump, especially if the meat is moving really, really slow. Um, I don't, I like candy all the time, but I don't love candy on meat day because it doesn't really make me feel good. Um, but if I do have some, I like to save it. I think I had, I had a cookie I had a cookie before deadlifts at Surge because one of Shauna's friends made like this big batch of cookies and brought them in. But like she brought them in at 9am and there were lifters that were like eating cookies at 9am. And I'm like, that's, that's really not going to fuel you or get you through anything. So yeah, like keeping the caffeine minimal, keeping the candy minimal, like it's a, uh, it's fun. You want to have fun on that day, but you can, I, I have fun eating peanut butter crackers. I think those are delicious. I have fun eating. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so there, there's, there's no reason to be fatigued on meat day. You're literally conditioned for this. You literally peaked and tapered for that very day to take nine singles where you get to sit down for 10 to 15 minutes between each attempt and then two to three hours between each lift. You are very conditioned. It's fine. You're fine. You, you do three times the volume of the general workout than you do on meat day. Yes. <laughs> 
And if your attempt selection is correct, it's really only one heavy attempt, to be honest with you. <laughs> your opener should be last warm-up, regardless. So you're taking two heavies per lift. So six heavy attempts, three last warm-ups, you're done. <laughs> Realistic. Realistically, your third is probably the only one that you haven't felt before. Your opener yeah. that you have felt before. So I agree. All right, what's our next question? Um, main cues for bench. Ah, so this is an interesting one. I like to start with with stabilizing your body in your position first. You know, lock yourself into the bench, lock yourself into the ground, stabilize your shoulders against the bench, stabilize your hips. The more stability you can create, the more power and force you can generate. So I think I summed this up into Stabilize your body, tension the bar, lower with control, and then punch the sky. So I try not to overcomplicate things. And sometimes I'll hear a coach shout out 10 cues at a meet. Like, there's no way that person can go through all 10 of those cues and still execute the lift. So it just starts with the setup for me. It's always about the setup. So set your body to be stable. Set your tension on the bar so you're locked in tight. Lower with control so you don't, you don't misgroove. God, I hate that so much. So you don't misgroove a raw lift. But lower with control so you don't bring it in the wrong pattern. And then just punch the sky when you get that press command as hard as you can. Create all force. Because if you're locked down and stable, you're not going to butt pop. You're creating force for the right thing. Your knee extending, not hip extending. And you're driving your arms and triceps into that bar as best you can. So that would be the ultimate cue is set yourself up for as much, much success as you possibly can before you even unrack the bar. I hate seeing a lazy unrack. I don't care what lift it is. I don't care if it's a squat or a bench. If you unrack lazy, chances are you're going to unrack sloppily the heavier the bar gets as well. I will unrack an empty bar the exact same way I will unrack a PR. Nothing changes. From bar to PR, absolutely nothing ever changes. Yeah. Uh, bench should be uncomfortable. Like, we know that you're laying down and, it, you know, everyone jokes. <laughs> but, like, I feel the most uncomfortable when I'm setting up for bench press. I feel like that's the one that requires me to create the most amount of tension. Uh, and like between my whole body, right? Like everything else is uncomfortable too. Like your squat and your deadlift should be uncomfortable, but bench is also uncomfortable. It's not a nap, um, but you should be as tense as you possibly can be. You should be squeezing the bar as hard as you can. Like any loss of tension in your bench pattern is going to result in not so great patterns or not so great press. Um, so I feel like that you always talk about like the pinky cue. I feel like squeezing through your pinkies is always um, super beneficial, making sure that your feet are stable on the ground. And just, I always see people drop their, drop their chest as they are lowering the bar. So like, as they're lowering the bar, their whole body relaxes. So I always like to remind people to like, try to meet the bar halfway with their chest or reach for the reach for the bar with their chest. Some people will get that wrong. We'll overemphasize and we'll lift their hips too, but it's not that we're trying to lift our whole body towards the bar. We just want to keep our chest high. So that way we are trying to meet it halfway in a sense. Um, so making sure that you're as uncomfortable as possible when you're benching, because one, if you're uncomfortable, you'll want to get it off you faster. You'll press faster. So be uncomfortable. <laughs> Nothing in this sport is comfortable at all. <laughs> Our constantly ripped up bloody hands will, and shins will tell you that. Yeah. Uh, keep the head down. That actually depends on your federation. There are actually some federations that allow you to lift your head up, but oh, not everyone. Yeah, the full-on, like, multiply, look at the bar, rounding his shoulders forward. So I yelled at him to keep his head down so we can keep that, that thoracic extension. Yeah, I mean, that's a common thing for, for gear lifters is to look for the bar. And it's a common thing that will pull a raw lifter's shoulders forward is when they start chasing and looking for the bar with their head. Yeah, you can drive with your head, but usually, you know, the smaller lifter, if you're under like a 242 lifter, you don't usually get away with that very well because it takes you out of position. And so most lifters will usually do better with 
some level of thoracic extension, keeping that head down, unless they're a bigger lifter and they have a lot of frame that they can meet the bar and launch with their body, the bench belly, if you will. I've had, there's been a couple of lifters that I've had where they like, not even lift their head, but they just like continue to look and like watch the bar as they lower it. And I'm like, where do you think it's going? Or <laughs> <laughs> <Somewhere> else. <laughs> there's, there's only one way to look. There's only one place to look. It's only going to go one place. That's to your chest. You don't have to watch, you know? So I think that's funny. Um, okay. Do you personally feel any benefit for training on the axle bar or other obscure bars? Uh, this is a good question. I do like the axle bar a lot for presses and rows for various reasons. Like we, you talked about the pinky pressure. When you're squeezing the axle bar to bench press, you are constantly engaging and learning that pattern of keeping your hands clenched and hands tight so the bar doesn't move around. And it's not a rotating or oscillating bar in any means. So you have to control that, that bar. And it tends to be a lot more comfortable for a lot of lifters to bench on the bar for their shoulders, their elbows, or their, or their wrists from the axle because the hand being wider grip instead of tightly gripped. Um, you're still gonna grip it tightly, but just an op more open hand space. So I do like axle bars for bench press. And I also do like it for like heavy bent over rows to build your grip strength for the deadlifts and so forth. I don't love it for other movements. I think it limits you. Unless you're a strong man, you probably shouldn't be deadlifted with an axle bar, uh, especially if you're going to strap into it anyways. That's just really stupid. But you just use a stiff bar at that point. But it's um, – he said obscure bars, and he actually followed this up later when I answered the question because people were talking to him and saying you only need a straight bar. Um, technically, that's true. If you're going to squat bench and deadlift in a competition with a straight bar, the only thing you actually ever need to train on is a straight bar. Is bar variation helpful? Absolutely. If somebody has bad elbows, bad shoulders, bad whatever, or needs to learn how to get thoracic extension, or just you don't want to beat them up, using a SSB or a Cambridge bar or a Buffalo bar can be very beneficial. Is it absolutely mandatory? No. Uh, when I think of obscure bars, I think of like the Mars bar, which is just really stupid. The one that sits halfway down your back. And uh, I, I said, don't at me, Larry, because Larry is someone who has nerve damage in his neck and shoulder from, I think from a car accident, if I remember correctly. And so straight bar or even SSB kind of pinches on there. Uh, he does do his top set first with the straight bar, the SSB, and then uses the Mars bar for all his volume to not make it worse, which is fine. I think it's ridiculous when somebody has a lift that is higher with an obscure specialty bar than their actual competition lift. At that point, what's the point? You're not building anything. You're just taking advantage of the leverage. The Mars bar uses a lot of leverage to allow you to move a lot of load, but you're never going to have that bar low in competition, and your hands actually have to be in the bar. So it doesn't really train the pattern. Some of those bars that are really obscure are kind of silly, like the Tsunami bar. Uh, the Tsunami bar is the one that literally waves and does that. You know, you can just put some bands on some hanging kettlebells and create chaos that way to work on your stability. Getting a specific Tsunami bar is just dumb. Uh, you can't use that much load with it anyway, so it's more of a primer or a warm-up or rehab tool, but I wouldn't be training on it consistently because you're not going to build anything with it. Some of these bars just do get a little ridiculous. Uh, and this is from a bar four who owns 28 personal barbells for one person. So, But uh, they're all like SSB, deadlift bars, and straight bars. <laughs> a few Swiss bars mixed in there because I'm bougie. But um, uh, you, you really, truly only need a straight bar. Variation is wonderful, and it can be helpful if you're working on something very, very specific with a person or working around something, but the true need is just a straight bar. Yeah, I to ask what the definition is of, of obscure in this uh, question, because like a spider bar, and that's like a cambered bar with an SSB, that's pretty obscure, but there's like a lot of benefit to that because it's an SSB, so it's going to be uh, more on your, it's more of a high bar, so it's more on your torso and your quads, and then it's also a cambered bar, so it's focusing on stability. So realistically, like just like with the uh, behind the neck uh, pull down, uh, I think that you can find benefit in realistically 
anything that you do. It just has to be catered towards that lifter. Like if you, like Trevor said, if you're a variation, if you're using a variation bar and it is like massively, uh, massive discrepancy between your one rep max with a straight bar, then like you probably don't need to do that. Um, but don't take away my deficits because I know that I'm better at deficits than I am off the floor with conventional. So there's it. And a deficit stiff bar. <laughs> yeah. don't, don't take those away from me. I have fun with those. Um, so, you know, like if your variation is uh, way, way stronger than your straight bar or whatever, then you definitely have to focus more on the straight bar. So realistically, whatever intent that you have with the bar that you're using, it needs to benefit you. Like you should be kind of bad at it. You should be worse at it than you are the straight bar to get benefit out of it, I feel like. So. Josh, I hate the spider bar and no one ever uses it at our gym. Guess what? You're getting it for like a whole block. <laughs> I love my spider bar. It's the most awkward and uncomfortable barbell I have to squat with because like Riley said, it is, it's this high bar. It's an SSB, so you get that thoracic grounding, you have to fight the thoracic grounding, and then the camber swings. It's like a roller coaster relationship of mood swings that bar. <laughs> and I love it so much. <laughs> Chaos suits me. He's like, fuck. <laughs> Yeah, I do love my spider bar. That's actually my favorite uh, barbell to use. Usually when I'm coming off of a meet or an off season, um, I don't have it with me at Treasure Coast. I'm training most of there right now. So, but if I do get myself back in the garage, that's like my accessory day favorite is the spider bar, like shoeless, beltless squat to really see where it, it, it exposes area of my body that I need to work on. So it'll either expose the thoracic extension issue or it'll expose the bracing or exposes my ankle mobility, whatever. But that bar always exposes an area I should be focusing on. Yeah, shirtless, beltless, egoless, all that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, uh, very important question here. Is pizza a fast food, yes or no? Oh, damn. I think we've defined this once before in conversation that fast food is food that you get in under five minutes. We're gonna yeah. call quick casual because it takes at least 11 minutes to cook this pizza although there's a couple places now that can get it to you in about six like a blaze pizza or whatever place we eat in texas that had like the four thousand degree oven that cooked in three minutes but it still took them 30 minutes to bring it to the table so i'm gonna call pizza a quick casual food but it's not a fast food unless it's a microwave pizza and then it's a fast food but that's not very tasty okay there's levels to this right there's levels. <laughs> I feel very passionate about this topic. So now if, if you have a delivery pizza or you have a frozen pizza or like Russ is saying, uh, hot and ready at Little Caesars, if those are the pizzas that you're having, to me that's fast food because the quality is relatively on the low end, right? But pizza outside of that, artisanal pizza, Neapolitan pizza, um, pizza even like even like if you go to like a blaze or a mod where you're building your own pizza, the whole process of that is not fast. It is personalized. It is higher quality, whatever. I am a slight pizza snob and I like artisanal or Neapolitans type pizzas. Those ones take a little bit more time. Yes. They may be cooked really, really fast in the, uh, in the stone brick ovens, like we're talking about. Um, but they are, quality so that is not a fast food to me that is a full ass food group and it provides me nutritional value it provides me happiness it keeps me sane it is my power food i stand by this um that these are that pizza that is not delivery 
or DiGiorno <laughs> or, uh, or Little Caesars, those are, that's, that's its own category. That's, that's when you want to be a trash panda, right? But if you're going out of your way to have better pizza, it is not a fast food. It is gourmet. I, I can vouch for this because I ordered the Lou Malnati's at Surge and it takes him an hour to cook this deep dish pizza, which Russ got to have. And if he's, he, he, he eats little seizures, his standards are really low. So, you know, his opinion doesn't even matter. Hold but on. yeah, pizza Hold takes on. more than five minutes. Hold on. Some of us did not grow up <laughs> wealthy. Some of us, <laughs> little seizures grow up. Would still eat Little Caesars to this day, and pretzel crust pizza from Little Caesars is actually still delicious. So, I reject your statement about Little Caesars. <laughs> I didn't say it wasn't delicious. I just said it was low quality. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're such a pizza aficionado, what is the name of Little Caesars mascot? Oh, fuck. I don't know. Little Nero. <laughs> Little Nero? Little Nero. How's that? Pizza quality. <laughs> quality. I know a thing or two about a thing or two, and Little Nero had me eating lots of Little Caesars and having his hunger because it was around the corner, but I wasn't the happiest kid either. <laughs> and I had a mother who was not home, so Little Caesars was hot and ready. <laughs> I, you know, they're... they're... Can you hear me? You're buffering. You're buffering, yeah. Oh, uh, their their breadsticks are pretty amazing. Yeah, they do have really good breadsticks. It's really just pizza crust that's like half baked with Parmesan cheese, <laughs> like doused in butter or something. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. yeah. So with, uh, uh, pizza Hut's breadsticks is just like thick pan crust pizza crust that's just been like toasted with with garlic butter and parmesan. Yes, those breadsticks. <laughs> All right, clearly we're ending this one on a high note <laughs> with trash panda pizza and little Nero. <laughs> oh, the thin crust and Domino's is pretty good. If it, yes, we have tried it. I, I sadly have the Domino's app on my phone, and when Titus lived with me, that was a weekly staple of getting like three pizzas. <laughs> And eating an entire thin crust myself because it's single serving size in my mind. But um, all right, so Riley, thank you for joining me. Is there anything you want to add to this one? Not today. We're back to our normal. Things are normal again. All right, well, thank you guys all for tuning in. Thank you for asking questions. Thank you for sharing the podcast every Monday when it gets uh, downloadable on all podcast platforms. Thank you for following and supporting Culture Nutra. And if you need programming without coaching, we have the Cultivating Strength platform that you can do. Your first week is free to try it. It's available in both of our bios on Instagram. You guys can check that out and see that. And Riley, thank you for joining me. You're welcome. Russ, thank you for being annoying. He said you're welcome. <laughs> and we'll talk to you guys later. Have a good one. Bye.